Oh, it continues, doesn't it? I think the, the pace at which all of this is happening is overwhelming. I think that's, you know, every, every day we gather and uh, my wife and I are watching the nightly news together and we uh, just, last night I was saying, oh, it's this many. And she said, no, no, you're a day behind. It's been this many. It's just the numbers of infected and dead rise every hour. And the pictures coming out of Egypt, out of not Egypt, but out of Europe and uh, even closer to home in New York City are are staggering. Um, last night they were saying that uh, every 17 minutes someone is dying in New York City. That's sobering. That's sobering. Every 17 minutes. Now, if you're a Christian, if you really are one this morning, we're called to act not out of fear, but out of faith. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, today I want to look at one of the most beautiful, in my opinion, most practical, and but maybe perhaps a little less known passages of the Old Testament. It's what I call the life or the mission song of the prophet Habakkuk. It's a troubled prophet. And first this morning, I want to give you a little bit of context, because we're kind of dropping in on him at the end. We get to see the sweet stuff, his conclusions, and and how he, he works this out. But I want to give you a little bit of context before I read, and then we'll unpack the, the, the message together. But first of all, let's understand a little bit about who Habakkuk was. Some of you say Habakkuk, and I, I grew up saying Habakkuk, um, but uh, I learned later on that it's actually, I think it's supposed to be Habakkuk, but Habakkuk or Habakkuk, it doesn't matter. And frankly, we don't know very much about him. We may stumble over his name, but all that we know is that he lived around the 7th century and uh, uh, B.C. during the time of the divided kingdom. And his is one of the shortest prophetic books in the Old Testament. But don't be deceived. Sometimes short is sweet. And this is the case, I think, very much so with Habakkuk. It is, I think, one of the most profound and helpful passages in terms of understanding the times that we live in today. If you go through the book of Habakkuk in chapter 1, we see that Habakkuk is troubled with the sin and the wickedness that he sees around him in Israel. And he wrongly perceives that God is idle while the world is falling apart. And he feels that his prayers go unanswered. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Perhaps with everything that's going on with you and I and the world in this situation, we might be tempted to think this way too. Perhaps you can identify with the prophet Habakkuk here. But later in chapter 1, God does answer him. Right? He answers him prophetically. And, and but, but Habakkuk doesn't like the answer that he gets. See, sometimes we don't like the answers that we get to prayer because God always answers prayer. It's either yes, in which case we generally are happy about that, but it's often no or not yet. And in this case, God answers with a resounding no, but he indicates that he is going to deal with the injustice that Habakkuk sees. And Habakkuk is perplexed by the moral dimensions of God's response. Because God says he sees what's going on in Israel. He sees the corruption. He sees the evil. And he's going to deal with it. And this is how he's going to deal with it. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans. 
The Chaldeans are the Babylonians, and they're going to come and they're going to they're going to make war on Israel, and they're going to drag the Israelites into captivity in Babylon. Now Habakkuk, as you can understand, as an Israelite, is not really pleased about that, and indeed he he struggles to understand this fully, and he asks God in chapter one, verse thirteen, the question why he remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He's talking about these Chaldeans, these Babylonians. They are not of God's chosen people. And yet God is using them to swallow up his people. Habakkuk is trying to figure out, how is this possible? How does this work? And God's response to Habakkuk is to direct Habakkuk and us famously in chapter 2. He says that we are the righteous are to live by faith, not by sight, not by, by what we can see, taste, touch, hear, or feel, but by faith in the God who made them. And he points Habakkuk beyond the immediate problems to focus on him. Now, if I told you to not worry about your situation, but just think about me, you'd think, what a ridiculous person. What, what, a, what an egotistical being. But you see, the difference is that God is the holy God. God is the perfect God. God is the one who gives meaning and purpose and who indeed shows his grace and his mercy to us. And so he's worthy of our meditation. He's worthy of our thought. And he's, he is indeed the, the focus of our existence. We're created to glorify God and to enjoy him. But instead, and the Bible says that, that God's wrath is poured out upon us because instead of worshiping God, we worship created things rather than the God who made us. And that's the source of conflict between God and man. And this is what's happening in Israel. They are the chosen people, but they're not acting like the chosen people. They're acting uh, according to their own wisdom. And so we see this interaction between Habakkuk and God, and Habakkuk is wondering, what's God going to do? How can, how can God do this? And we see this interaction going through chapters 1 and chapters 2. And if you get a chance, I would encourage you, read the whole whole book to get the context. But in the beginning of chapter, verses of chapter 3, we see that Habakkuk goes through a transformation. Because as he interacts with God, as he wrestles with God in prayer, we see that he begins to live by faith. And he begins to apply who God is and his knowledge of God to his situation. God has laid out his sovereign plan to Habakkuk, and it is to go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's honestly what's ahead for Israel. And chapter 3 is how Habakkuk processes this. It's how Habakkuk composes this incredible psalm of praise to God. And this is the, the fruit of his meditation and his thought on this. Now, as we look at Habakkuk 3, I'm going to read it now to you, but I want you to, to notice that it is a psalm. Now, we're used to the book of Psalms being in the middle of our Bible, but this is actually a psalm. This was meant to be sung. God's last words to Habakkuk are indeed final. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him, before his judgment. And then Habakkuk's response to that is to praise God is to sing this psalm. And if you look at the very end of chapter 3, you see that it is a psalm because just like we've been going through our series in the Psalms, if you're with us in CBC Toronto, 
It begins with, uh, it ends with an inscription. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Hear now God's holy word. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sunk low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots, uh, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the, from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we see this prayer, this psalm of Bacchus, Lord, we pray, would you use our meditation and our examination of it to drive us up to the heights of fellowship with you? Would you use the word that's preached, Lord, as a means of grace in us this morning? Bless us, Lord. Help me, oh Lord, I, I feel my weakness. Indeed, Lord, we are all weak in the face of microscopic germs, but Lord, we are weak in many other ways as well. I pray, oh Lord, that you work through the weakness and the, the, the strangeness of this situation. 
for the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to direct your attention to this psalm, this life psalm of Habakkuk here. Some of us like who like church history like to read about missionaries. One of the things that I've done with my kids is read through some missionary biographies. Um, John Payton is a great one. And we've all heard of missionaries before. Some of us have heard of William Carey, who famously was the, one of the first modern missionaries who, who went to India and uh, had an incredible impact there, and Adoniram Judson and others. But I wonder if you've heard of a man named Alan Gardner. I hadn't heard of him until I saw something referenced in something written by Tim Keller. Now, Alan Gardner was an English missionary who, in 1851, went to South America, and his intention was to go there to, to preach the gospel that's there. But his intention was not God's intention. In fact, as he went, his, his ship was shipwrecked, uh, and he was shipwrecked with a, a number of his companions on a, a remote island, an uninhabited island off the bottom tip of South America. And the sad reality about um, this missionary is that he never got a chance really to begin his mission in earnest because all of the party, including Alan Gardner, was lost. They all died. They starved to death. But why do we know about him? Well, we know about him because he kept a journal. And when they came, the search party came looking for him, they found the journal next to his body. The last entry in the journal cited Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now just think about that for a second. Here's a man who's dying of hunger, but he's able to say, his last entry in the journal is, but they who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The very last thing that he's writing in his journal is, I'm overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. This is what he wrote. This is a man dying of starvation. It's a man far from home, a man whose dreams are dashed and by all worldly accounts is an utter failure. His body is broken and his last words are, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Again, it's staggering. Now, I've thought about this many times since I've read this. How do you and I normally come to the conclusion that God is good? How do you and I ordinarily come to a sense of the goodness of God? When do we say that God is good? You know when we say that God is good? When things are good that are happening to us. When things are going well. When, metaphorically speaking, our fig trees are blossoming. When the money's there, when the job's there, when the health is there, when things are going the way you want, when the circumstances of your life are going well, you say, ah, God is good. And maybe you say at the end all the time. But we don't often remember that in the hard times, do we? This man, Alan Gardner, found a way to contact, to access the goodness and love of God in the most extreme 
of life circumstances. And it's apart from these circumstances that he engages in. Everything in his life had gone wrong. Yet he was in contact with the goodness of God. He was overwhelmed, not just in contact, he was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. This is staggering. We tend to believe in the goodness of God when we have good circumstances, when we get that job, when we find that person, when we obtain that raise, when we have children given to us, when we have good circumstances in our lives. That's when we feel that God is really good. The contrast is here, Alan dying of starvation, and yet his last thoughts are the overwhelming goodness and love of God, in spite of it. So how does this happen? How do, how do you get here? Right? Some of us are going to face the reality of death. All of us all will, but some of us will have to face it sooner than others. How will you face that hardship? How will you face that reality? John Wesley used to say, our people die well. Will you be able to die well? Will you be able to die as Alan Gardner did? How do you do that? How do you face dark times? How do you live by faith when what you see ahead of you is darkness and uncertainty? Well, the prophet Habakkuk helps us with that. In Habakkuk, we see something of that journey of of growth in faith. Sometimes that happens when the circumstances are thrust upon us. Sometimes we grow in faith little by little over time. Other times, We have extreme circumstances pressed upon us, and we have to grow up fast. How do we do that? Well, the good news is it's by faith, and faith is a gift from God. Maybe you don't have that faith this morning. My hope is that you will. As we consider how Habakkuk engaged this, we see Habakkuk start to struggle with the hardship of his circumstances. And at the end of the book, here in the passage that we're looking this evening, this morning, sorry, he humbly comes before God and he worships him. He accepts God's justice against Israel. And then he asks God not to take away the judgment, but that in his wrath against sin, that God would remember mercy. You see, the wages of sin, as the Bible says, is death. And the reason why we have death in this in this world is not because of the Lion King and the circle of life and all of that business and nonsense. Death is in this world because of sin. And the Bible is very clear. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so this is where our focus is. Now, this doesn't mean that the vacuum doesn't struggle with this reality. Things are not easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for Habakkuk. His struggle's not over. In fact, we see him struggle with real fear here. In verse 16, he says, uh, Yet I will quietly, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Maybe you've had that experience as you've been watching the news. And maybe you have realized that maybe it's not so remote out there. You see, it's not just old people now. They're talking about younger people being affected by this, too. It's touching all of our lives. Now, how do we respond? 
What would we do to Habakkuk's fear? Maybe we might say, come on, Habakkuk, man up, right? Take it like a man, right? Might to encourage him to be self-controlled, be, be courageous. Stop your crying and your whining about the situation. Face it like a man. And then if we know something about Christianity, we might say, well, you should have the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, brother. You should have self-control and, 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 and love and patience and all those kinds of things. We might just tell him to fuck up. Or if we see another person um, in, in fear, we might try and distract them. Right? We might encourage Habakkuk to forget about it. The best thing you can do if you see this impending doom coming is to just 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 escape. Go go stream Netflix or, or go 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 do something else. Go do the eternal scroll. Just escape the solution. You escape the situation. That's that's the solution that a lot of people look to. Let's just escape the situation. I mean, some of you remember uh, the the the, uh, the warning. We've had all these warnings this week from the Ontario government and everything else. But there was a warning that went out when they were starting this warning system uh, to Hawaii. Some of you may uh, have heard of this, but there was a a couple of years ago there was a national alert or a statewide alert that went to the state of Hawaii, warning them that nuclear uh, missiles had been launched from North Korea and they were going to land in 20 minutes. Do you imagine getting a text like that, right? And you might remember how they, they responded, right? Some people hid their children in storm drains and took shelter in basements, but others just sat there. One guy opened up a $1,000 bottle of whiskey and just drank it. Right? That's how we handle fear. We try and prepare. We try and do things. I think this is partly why people are fascinated with TP these days. Right? Because it's something you can control. At least that's what the psychologists tell us. Right? But that's not how Habakkuk handled his fear. The psalm of Habakkuk here, as we go through it this morning, provides us with a different alternative. Better than denial. Better than false courage. Better than escape. Habakkuk responds very differently. We all find ourselves, in some sense, facing uncertainty, just as Habakkuk did. And maybe your uncertainty is not related to COVID at all. Maybe your uncertainty is your, not just your fear of getting sick, but maybe your, your, your situation is related to your job or to your marriage or to your children. Maybe this morning you just feel like you're in a pit that you can't get out of. Life has not gone the way that you expected. And you've been shipwrecked somewhere. You don't know how to proceed. This psalm of Habakkuk shows us how to proceed. To remain on mission in the midst of great fear. In the midst of very difficult circumstances. And it shows us that God's wrath against sin is very real. That the wages of sin is death. That he will not tolerate sin and he will act. And it may mean that we will face hardship as a result. Habakkuk believed God when God spoke of this coming judgment. And friends, we need to take the warnings in Scripture seriously. God is not playing around. He will hold us accountable. As we said and we saw last week from Luke 13, Jesus' word in the face of disasters like this are repent, lest you likewise perish. He says, do you think you're any better than anyone else? Repent, lest you likewise perish. 
We are accountable to God, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. So how does Habakkuk work in this situation? He believed God, and he lives by faith, and he finds strength in God's absolute sovereignty in the midst of his utter weakness. We're going to see that in two brief points this morning. First of all, we're going to see that Habakkuk recalls the mighty acts of God in the past. He rehearses what he already knows about God and how God has worked. And then secondly, and amazingly, and counterintuitively, he rejoices in the midst of his weakness. So let's consider this first point here, Habakkuk recalling the mighty acts of God. And as we recall, as I was saying in the context here, Habakkuk is coming into the process of accepting reality and processing. And we see that there's a development in Habakkuk's thinking in the previous chapters. When he first heard the news that God was going to judge Israel by sending Babylon to to come and devour them, to invade them, he goes through a thinking process. First thing he does is he meditates on God and God's past work in the life of Israel. And he restates this in chapter 1, verse uh, 12 and following. He talks about how God is everlasting and eternal, how God is a God of justice. He's reminding himself of this as he's trying to process everything that's going on around him. And then he, he starts to, to apply some basic principles of what he knows as he tries to get a foothold. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, but we will not die. But this doesn't solve his problem entirely because people will face death. And, and so he, he ends that first sort of discourse there uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, he, what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he waits upon the Lord. So this is what Habakkuk does when he's facing a terrible circumstance. When he knows what's coming, he rehearses what he knows. Well, let me ask you, if you're a Christian this morning, what do you know? What do you know? How well do you know the word of God? Is it part of your daily nourishment? We always talk about our devotions, but maybe we don't see the importance and the vitality of our devotions and the need for us to be in fellowship with God. This is a fundamental need that we have. It's extremely important for our growth. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have stored up the word in your heart that I might not sin against you. That's a practical at working. As fear grips our heart, do you speak to them from Isaiah 26? You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. You see, if we have the word of God in our hearts, we can address the fears and the circumstances that we face in faith. But I think it, it sometimes it seems very abstract. You know, we, we hear this all the time. We say, you know what? Read your scriptures, pray. That's what you need to do in this situation. And and but but we don't necessarily work out some of the, the practical outworkings of that and, and what that actually you know, means and looks like. Uh, I appreciate sometimes the, the, the practical situations. And Tim Keller, I think, outlines one that, that I think is very helpful for me to share with you. He says, for example, think this morning, some of you are this, but some of you are obviously not, think this morning that you are a single Christian woman. Okay? So we're taking this out of the COVID context and we're talking about just another practical situation. Maybe you're a young Christian woman, and like many young Christian women, you are single. And 
you have a desire to get married. You have a desire to, 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 to marry a godly Christian husband. Now, you go off to university, and uh, you meet this really attractive man, this really attractive guy. But it just so happens, it just so happens that he's not a Christian. Small little detail. Now, how do you solve this? How do you address this? Well, your emotions, they get the better of you. And you fall in love. And now, he comes to you on bended knee and says, will you marry me? Will you marry me? What will help you answer that question in the moment? What will help you? Well, Keller outlines and he says, basically, emotions won't help you. Emotions won't save you. In fact, emotion is what got you into the situation in the first place. You're driven by the way he makes you laugh and feel, the way he really understands you and hears you. It's just so amazing and awesome, and no other guy has ever done that in your life before. So if you're resting on your emotions, they're not going to guide you safely. Reason also won't save you in this. Why? Because you can think of a million reasons why you should stay with this man. Maybe even deceive yourself to the point where you believe that you need to stay with him. And I've heard this because you are the witness to that person. You're there and you're in a relationship with them because you want to share the gospel with them. What will save you? The only thing that will save you is knowledge of God's word and submission to it. The scriptures are very clear about relationships with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The teaching here is clear. If a person is a Christian, they must pray to God, confessing their sins and seeking repentance from God. See, the word of God is what guides and directs. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But sometimes we don't even open up the flashlight. It's like walking in the dark and expecting not to bump into things without a flashlight on. The word of God is our guide. It is our hope. And this is what what Habakkuk turns to. He rehearses what he knows. Now, he may not have had access to written copies of the scriptures or ready access to it, but he would have memorized. In fact, the the, the Old Testament Jews would have memorized the the scriptures, and they could even tell you where it was on the scroll and on the page. They, They were an oral culture. It was something that was very much a part of them. And we've lost some of that with all of our technology. We sort of think, oh, I don't need to memorize. I can just Google that. We do need that because sometimes we don't have Google available to us. So what does Habakkuk know about God? What does he rehearse? Well, he describes God's coming glory in verses 3 to 7 of our passage. He describes the actual process by which God came in all of his glory into the history of men and the awesome effects that came uh, through God's work in the past. In verse 3, we see this, this reference. He says, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. It was from Teman and Mount Paran. Now, those names might not mean anything to you. But to the Israelites, they recalled how God had brought them out of the land of Egypt and exile. These were, these were place names that reminded them that God had delivered them from the concentration camp of Egypt and brought them out. Teman is generally associated with the south of Israel, their entry into the promised land. And Paran is, is associated with the desert area around Sinai, which is where they retreated to when they left Egypt. 
And so this is what, what, what he meditates on. When he's facing those dark circumstances, he meditates on who God is and what God has done in the past. And then in verse 4, he speaks of the glory of God, the glory and the presence of God. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. He speaks of the brightness and, and the presence of God in, in, in Moses who went up the mountain uh, at Mount Sinai to receive the law. Remember, he came down and he had a veil that covered his face. And, and God's, God's power, God's, God's presence and his, his beauty and his holiness were so powerfully overwhelming that, that Moses, when he came down the mountain, was brightly reflecting that. And so he covered his face with a veil. Because God's dazzling glory, even in reflection, was something that people could not bear. But the neat thing about this is that God's glory was realized, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. We see the glory of, of God unveiled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is represented as the light of the world, right? The light is holy. 1 Timothy 6.16 describes God as one who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And this is the essence of the gospel. We need to see this light in our lives. You see, we are walking in darkness because of sin, and we need God's grace through Jesus Christ to enter our lives. We need God to make us holy, to make us clean. We can't save ourselves. The doctors can't save us. Only God can save us. And when we see God's holiness, we also see our own sinfulness more clearly. And as we read the scriptures, it, it brings perspective to it. When we see our sin in the light of God's word and his promises, we start seeing that we're not so different from the Babylonians. See, this was uh, Habakkuk's problem. He's like, why would you let wicked men come and take over righteous men. But the problem is the righteous men weren't so righteous. Right? They weren't so righteous. We need God's grace. Every one of us. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who deserves God's salvation. None of us. I don't. You don't. We deserve God's wrath. Because of our sin. Because we have worshipped created things rather than the creator. And so God brings this deliverance in Christ Jesus. And God has shown us that he can do this. And again, Habakkuk meditates on how God has delivered in the past. Verse 5 of our passage speaks of deliverance from Egypt by means of the ten plagues. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Verse 7 shows how God defeated Israel's enemies. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The defeat of Midian, if you recall, was by means of a dream about a dinner roll. I, I often go back. I remember hearing a sermon by Dale Ralph Davis on, on that. And he said, basically, a dream of a dinner roll defeated one of Israel's enemies. Like God used that to terrify them and to drive them away. Habakkuk knows these things, and he's recalling them. Is this something that you do as you start to feel the fears mount up? Say, well, wait a second. Look how God has shown his grace in the scriptures. Look at how the God has shown his grace to me in the past. We need to get grip on what is actually real. 
what is actually true, what is actually lovely and excellent and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. They're here. They're in his word. Don't neglect it. Back knows that our God is a God who is in utter control, a God who measures the whole earth. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sunk low. His were the everlasting world. And here he dialogues with God in verse verse 8. We see that God has arrived on the scene in Habakkuk's psalm. And, and Habakkuk now moves. After recalling and describing, he enters into conversation with him. And he uses this water imagery. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? He goes on in these verses, and we see really images of judgment mixed in with salvation. And this harkens back again to God's covenant role in delivering Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. You remember he took them through this, the Red Sea on dry land, and the Egyptians followed them and were crushed as God indeed crushed them with the closing of the sea over. So God comes in judgment, but he also comes in grace and salvation. He's the one, verse 11, in which, it, which verse 11 alludes to in demonstrating his sovereignty over the sun and the moon. Here's another history, historical reminder from Israel's past. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Well, what's that talking about? Well, that's again another reference to a deliverance in the Old Testament where God demonstrated his sovereignty over the sun and the moon for Joshua, the victory at Gibeah. You can read that, for example, in Joshua 10. Even as God dealt with the nations in his anger. So this is how Habakkuk addresses it. As he faces devastation by a foreign army coming to invade, how he gains a grasp on reality is that he depicts God's greater wrath and greater power in history. No nation can withstand the onslaught. So even as he anticipates the onslaught of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, he takes refuge is that there is no greater army than the army of the Lord. And we need to remember this even as we face the, the uncertainties surrounding COVID-19. The more time you spend on the internet, I think <laughs> the more discouragement that we receive. But here's the thing that we need to understand. We have a God who made us, a God who knows us intimately at the subatomic level, at the most minute level of detail. And so our comfort is not in our ability, but in him and in his sovereignty. And it's important for us to see that Habakkuk here, as he rehearses this, is truly living by faith, because he's not just rehearsing this, he's expecting that God will respond. He's expecting a salvation, right? He says, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. He expects that God will deliver, deliver him. And so what we see here is Habakkuk, not, now that he's rehearsed the, the, the events in history, as he's made reference to God's victories in the past, he's now claiming them for himself. He's saying to God, show me this in our time. He's saying, I've heard of this. Now let me see it. 
as we look at the situation that's going on in our world today, we need to do this in our prayers. We've heard about the history of God working through difficult situations, bringing many to faith in times of crisis. It's time for us, brothers and sisters, to pray that God would do this, that he would use this time to quicken people's hearts, to help them to recognize that they are accountable to the God who made them, that they cannot escape the reality of his wrath, that they cannot escape the reality of judgment, that they need to repent and believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. We need to trust that God can work through this for his grace and for his glory. And we need to be doing this ourselves. We, why do we read the Bible? Why do we read the Old Testament? Why do we read the scriptures? It's how we get to know our God. This is how we know what God is capable of in situations like this. And it makes us bold in our prayers and strong in our faith. Because as we read the scriptures, we get to know God. And we know him as, as Habakkuk knows him, as he works through and as he reflects on these things, we see an increase in faith develop. You see, we don't walk in darkness because we've been given his word. It's a revelation to us, and it's a guide to us. And if you think about it, what could be a more important thing for us to be meditating on as we prepare for difficulty and distress than a God who delivers his people? And it doesn't just end, by the way, in the Old Testament. This happens in the New Testament as well. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He faces all the temptations that the devil has to offer us. And he conquers sin and death on the cross. He promises that he will not give us more than we can bear, but provide a way of escape so that we can bear up under the load. This is the glory of having a relationship with God. The question is, do you actually believe it? Do you actually practice it? And we struggle, don't we? Do you believe that as your children get older and start making their own choices for better or for worse, that God will work for good? Do you believe as you face your retirement, as you feel your body getting older, do you trust God in the face of all the infections? Or do you put your trust in masks and gloves and washing your hands? Now, don't misunderstand me. Wash your hands, put on masks and gloves. We need to understand that our trust, even in this, is in the Lord. As Proverbs says, prepare the horse for battle, the Lord brings victory. And the practical outworking of that is use the means that are available to us. Use the medicines, use, use those things, but expect that the Lord is the one who will deliver. So this is what Habakkuk does, first of all when he's facing this terrible crisis. And what we need to do is we need to rehearse the mighty acts of God, to remember that he is a God who saves. He's a God who delivers. He's a God who sustains. And he's shown this in the past in history. But then the, the, the real meat of this, this thing, and I think why it's so beloved, is verses 17 through 19, where we see the outcome of Habakkuk's meditation. What's the fruit? Well, we have here an ironclad statement of faith in God. That's the, the outcome. That's the fruit. Habakkuk is now seeing that God's ways 
are not his ways necessarily, not Habakkuk's ways. They are far better. And he gratefully submits himself to God's sovereignty. And this leads to some of the most beautiful and inspiring words of the scriptures. Here in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What do we do when we're facing fear? We buck up, we man up, we escape. Well, the answer is not stoicism. The answer is not escape. The counterintuitive answer for how we face this in faith and not fear is to do as Habakkuk does, and that is to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. To put your trust in him alone. This is what this psalm has been building up to, and this is Habakkuk's personal confession here. Verse 18, he repeats it. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This repetition is there. It's, it's meant to, to, to push it deeper into us. And the, the rejoicing in the Lord is evident in the way that, that Habakkuk pro- progresses through this, the, this, this psalm. It's a progression. If you were to see this in the Greek or in the Hebrew, sorry, you would see that he changes how he refers to God. It starts out with um, Elohim, which is in verse 3. He talks about him being Elohim. Um, it's an ancient poetic name for God. But when the prophet begins to dialogue with God, in beginning in verse 8, he addresses God with this covenant name. He calls him Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is. And then finally, he expresses in verse 19, he says, God, the Lord, right? This is, he is acknowledging Yahweh Adonai, that he is not just a covenant God, but he is also my master, right? So we see a, 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 an increase in terms of how his faith grows, even in the, in the progress of the song. He refers to God, and then he is the covenant God, and then he's my God, Yahweh Adonai. But what does this mean practically when he takes his joy in the Lord and not in his circumstances? And this is, I think, uh, a very helpful, helpful thing in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He's, how is he able to rejoice in the midst of his sufferings? He says, God, the Lord is my strength. Yahweh Adonai is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high place. How is he able to rejoice in the midst of his sufferings? What does it mean by this? To go up on a, a mountain, as we all know, is very dangerous. I, years ago, I, I climbed a, a, a little hill. I don't even know what's really a mountain in Phoenix. And I got to tell you that it took me uh, half an hour to get the last 10 feet. It was very tenuous for me. It was scary for me. Dangerous. But And, and, and the thing that I felt was that you know if you, if you had just one little slip, and then that's it. There's nothing. I didn't have any equipment with me. I was just with some some friends, but they were like mountain goats, and they went up there. And I I was just holding on to everything as I was going up. But going up uh, high is is dangerous. But if you're able to navigate it, if you're able to walk sure-footedly, if you're able to live up there, then you have tremendous advantages. In ancient times, this would have been 
very advantageous in a lot of ways. One of the reasons why Jerusalem was such a, a coveted city is that it was called the city on a hill, which meant that it was hard to attack because it had clear sight lines in every direction, and it looked down on the valley. And so any enemy that was going to approach Jerusalem had to come up a mountain, and it was very difficult. And the people who were on the mountain could see for miles in every direction and be prepared for any attack. They had the vantage point. And so what, what Habakkuk is saying here is that he makes God makes his feet like the deer's. He makes him to go up and tread on his high places. And this is the, the, the position of advantage in any sort of struggle, in any sort of battle. And what Habakkuk is saying here is that when suffering comes to you, and the reality is suffering will come to us, when disappointments and failures and hard times come, one of the most important things to remember is that God is sovereign and that he uses suffering to push us up the mountain, to push us up to the heights, to the high places. You see, this is where our, our trust in the word of God comes into play. To be able to say, despite the circumstances, whatever my God ordains is right. Though dark my road, he holds me fast. God will push us up through our suffering. And you know, suffering can be handled a lot of different ways. You've seen some people go through suffering. Some people get softer and more tender. And others people get harder. They get more harder. Some get empathetic and compassionate, and others get more cynical and bitter. I've seen both. There's no nothing, and this is the thing that's kind of interesting, there's nothing that can make you more arrogant than suffering. Because suffering can feel like make you feel like no one else knows what I'm going through. No one else understands the pain and the suffering I am going through. And it makes you feel almost noble and even self-righteous. And that can be one response to it. But others can face it. They can be softened. Some people get more like Alan Gardner, able to face anything. Other people get more fragile. Some people get sweeter. Others get perpetually sour. In other words, suffering will either make you a far better or a far worse person than you were before. Suffering will either make you fall farther than you have ever fallen before and actually destroy you spiritually and emotionally, or it will put you on the heights. In fact, as it says literally there in verse 19, he makes me go to my on my heights. He makes me to go on my heights. What does that mean? That means to be close to God. Heights of character, able to see things brightly. We may not be able to see why God does everything that he does, but sometimes through the anvil of suffering, he reveals his will and his perfect uh, approach to us. And we can understand this because God has revealed this to us. God has revealed that he has purpose, that he is sovereign over this. And Habakkuk here understands that God has promised that he will deliver his people. And that's why he can stand and wait. He can stand there and wait for God to act. 
And the reality is that you and I this morning have so much more. Because the, the story of God's redemption doesn't end with Habakkuk. It doesn't end with God taking the Israelites into exile. And he did. But he also returned them. He brought them back. Not all of them. But he brought back a remnant. And in that remnant were the, the, the descendants or the, the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ and his line was preserved all the way through that exile in Babylon. And if you look at the book of Matthew, it starts out with a genealogy. And it shows how God preserved the promise that he made to Israel and how he delivered on that. Because God revealed his final salvation in Jesus Christ. And for Habakkuk, he doesn't see that yet. He lives by faith in the promise that God will deliver. But we have Jesus Christ. We have so much more than Habakkuk because the details of his life are given to us in the Gospels. Jesus came as our great high priest, and he can sympathize as we suffer because he suffered, because he went to the cross for our sins. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, this is what it means to be a biblical Christian. This is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. It doesn't matter to us, in some sense, what comes. We might lose our job. We might see our bank accounts disappear. We might lose our health. We might lose access to the grocery store. Or we go to the grocery store and the shelves are empty. We might lose relatives and friends, our spouse, our children. And yet, we will be able to rejoice in our God. Because there is more to this life than what we can see, taste, touch, and smell. Because there is a God who is eternal. There is a God to whom we are accountable to. As Hebrews says, it is appointed for every man to die, and after that to face the judgment. And the reality is that we will live forever. The question is where? Will we live in his presence forevermore or under his wrath? If you know God, if you trust him for your salvation, if you see your sin and you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. And you're able to take to rejoice in these circumstances. I always think it's very interesting. Uh, this is the text that John Piper, some of you know him as a pastor. This is the, the text that he asked his pastor to preach at his wedding. He knew the covenant promises of God, but he had and he had no idea about the heartaches that he would face and that he would see. And he had children that turned away from him. But he and his wife wanted to set their course according to this scripture. And friends, we need to set our hearts according to this scripture. To walk by faith and not by sight. Because we don't have to live in fear anymore. All that we have is from God. And we are pilgrims in his hands. As Job said, he gives and he takes away. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, that's what, what happens when you're a Christian. You're not afraid of death. Sure, you don't want suffering. Sure, you don't want whatever else is to come. But you embrace the reality that you'll go and be with Christ. We need to take encouragement in the face of these things. It's easy to become discouraged. Some of you have seen the article that is circulated in uh, in recent days about um, Spurgeon 
and testimony of him during the cholera epidemic of 1854. Uh, some of you may not know the extent of that. In a single neighborhood um, around the Metropolitan Tabernacle where his church was, there were 500 fatalities in 10 days. And Spurgeon himself gave himself to pastoral work at this time, and he ministered, and he soon found himself physically and mentally exhausted. And he he began to fear for his own safety. He began to think, well, what if I get this virus? What do I do? Yet amid his fears, he learned to entrust himself to God and to his faithfulness. Here's what he writes. He says, at first, talking about the epidemic, I gave myself up with a youthful ardor to the visitation of the sick and was sent from all corners to the district by persons of all ranks and religions. But soon I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under me. I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when, as God would have it, my curiosity led me to read a paper that was wafered up in the shoemaker's window in the great Dover Road. It didn't look like a trade announcement, nor was it. For it bore in good, bold handwriting these words. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Spurgeon said this, the effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. Girt with immortality, I love that. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place these verses in the window, I gratefully acknowledge. And in remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. See, he's rejoicing in this. So friends, brothers and sisters, like Spurgeon before us and Alan Gardner, and Habakkuk, we need to appropriate the God of the scriptures for ourselves. We can also sing of his mercy and his glory and tell others of this. Tell others of that wonderful peace, that shalom peace of God, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But we can only speak of this if it's real for us. We can only speak of this if we have actually embraced it. Brothers and sisters, friends, Look to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came into the world to save sinners so that they, we would not perish but have eternal life. And as verse 17 of John 3 says, he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The reality is that Jesus will come back and he will bring judgment. But what he offers to us is salvation and grace. And he offers it to us freely. And he's the one that saves us, and he's the one that holds us fast through the valley of the shadow of death. And we may have struggles with our faith, but our faith and our, 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 our whole existence is secure in Jesus Christ. He's the one that holds on to us. Do you know that faith? Do you know that grace? Right? The Bible says you don't have to have a great understanding of everything. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, right? God, it can move mountains. And so, friends, my encouragement to all of us, and I speak to myself and to my family, we're downstairs, 
My word to you is the word of God, is to put your faith in this God, the God who has delivered in the past, the God who has shown his mercy and his grace time and time and time again. To meditate on that, instead of doing the endless scroll, meditate on his word. We have lots of time, right? We have more time than before. If you commute, you had an hour. You've now been given two extra hours in the day. How, how better would you know the word of God if you were listening to it, if you're reading it? How much more prepared would you be for what is to come? Friends, they are telling us, many of us who are listening to this broadcast, that we have not yet begun to experience the effects. And we really don't know what world we have to face in two or three weeks or a month or two months from now. But we do have the word of God. We do have his assurance. We do have the strength that he provides in. So let's redeem that time. Let's look to him. Let's put our trust in him. If you're now beginning to think about life and death as, as things are taken away, like the NBA, the, the sports, everything has been taken, taken away from us. We can't gather and do the things that we, we did before. We can't go to the restaurants and bars. We can't, we can't find all these escapes. Could it not be that God has taken these away so that he can grab your attention for the truth of reality to grip your heart, that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, you, you are accountable to the God who made you? God can work through this. Look to him. Look to his word. He is gracious. He is kind. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it is granted to those whom he gives the gift to live by faith. Let us live by faith in him as we face this dark road together. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a gracious God, that you don't leave us, as many think, to, to wander around in darkness and uncertainty in an unfair and unresolved universe. No, you have created a universe that is perfect and just. And though our sin has marred your creation, you are restoring it. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to restore relationship with us that sinners like us could come into a living relationship through Jesus Christ, through believing in what he did on the cross for our sins. Would you be at work in us, Lord, we pray. Would you allow faith, would you grant faith to drive out fear? Would you cause us, Lord, to indeed be able to echo the words of Habakkuk, that, he will re- that we will rejoice in you, though the fig tree does not blossom in The olive does not produce its fruit. Lord, I pray, would you give us strength and faith to face this? For you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will be with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. Or death has not touched us as closely in the past before as a society as it is now. I pray, O Lord, that you would use this to awaken us to the importance of reconciling now with you. Bless us, Lord. Bless this word. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.